Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Amplify Archaeology Podcast is sponsored by TUA. TUA is a membership with a growing community of like-minded people who love exploring island sites, landscapes and heritage. Join today for unlimited access to all of our exclusive articles, itineraries, courses and events. Discover more at tour.ie. So welcome to part two of Death in Prehistory with Professor Gabriel Cooney. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first part yet, we had a discussion about the archaeology of death, how we know what we know, how different types of evidence can cast light on different types of practice even belief and things like that so if you haven't had a chance to listen i do recommend you go back because it'll help to set the scene to this episode and in this one we're going to take a chronological approach we're going to start with the mesolithic and move through time and discuss where the changes happen where the continuity happens what some of these things might tell us about societies in the past so i hope you enjoy the second part of death in prehistory suppose now you know we we've talked a, a little there about the types of evidence we might have and, and the background to our understanding of um, death in the past we might now move towards some of the periods mm. and what they can tell us and where the similarities and the connections are and where the differences are between them and we'll begin at the beginning i think with begin Alan, at the beginning <laughs> yeah. because you know there, there are tantalizing hints aren't there that we, we there was at least human activity on the island of ireland prior to the mesolithic yeah but when it comes to the remains of people i think the earliest we have date to this era um with people largely living at that time as hunter-gatherers, movement is part of everyday life. And is that reflected in the way that they treated the dead? Uh, and can we understand anything about what the belief, cosmology, spirituality might have been? And, and because Mesolithic, it's by far our longest time period, um, do we see any kind of variation from one end to the other? Or as, as you mentioned earlier, because we only have so few examples of people um, being, you know, that mm. we have human remains uh, for so few examples, is there not much we can say about that kind of differences in continuity between one end of the Mesolithic and the other? Um, I think, I mean, again, lots lots of questions in there. Sorry. So I think it's, it's interesting that, so we've got relatively small you know, numbers of people from, from the Mesolithic, but imp really important evidence. And I suppose broadly what we've got, even though we're dealing with nine, ten, you know, small number of sites, 10, 11, 12 people, that we, we seem to be looking at three different treatments of the dead or three three different sets of, of, of evidence. This, you know, the, the burial of, of individuals, um, and and you know so the, the 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 notion of the individual is is retained after death and the, and probably the best example of that is the earliest burial at uh, at Hermitage in County Limerick which is in fact the earliest burial that we we have in Ireland and I'll, I'll come back to that and then this this the, the notion of the deposition of disarticulated bones mm. 
so the the careful you know the partial deposition of a person and then there's this phenomena that's referred to as loose human bone which occurs quite widely in mesolithic sites and it looks like people are carrying bone around after the person's death okay so there's so there's those th- you know th- three different ways of, of of dealing with the dead or what has survived to us so as i say hermitage is 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 a good example of the treatment of the body somebody's man was was, was burnt in a pyre all his all his bones were collected and, and again we we can say that because we use these analogies from modern cremation practices to say well what is the average weight of somebody's cremated remains after they're cremated and and this is how we end up then this idea of being able to say well is is, is all the remains of the person there yeah. or is only a partial representation so this individual on the was placed on the east bank of the Shannon close to Castle Connell in County Limerick he was placed in a pit a post was put in the pit to mark the burial uh, and an axe and a couple of microliths were placed with him apparently in the pit because they're burnt but the heat doesn't reflect as if they were on the on the pyre and then that location was used for two probably at least two subsequent later burials the first burial dates to before 7000 BC so we have this notion of you know for very formal treatment of somebody after death yeah, yeah very early on yeah and in a way it kind of corresponds with even though the our Irish record is quite small it's actually important in a European and, and Hermitage would, would, would be seen I think as important in a European practice cremation is practiced in the Mesolithic in Europe but inhumation tends to be more dominant the axe is interesting in that it's a large shale axe and work uh, on, the, on, on the, the kind of microware by um, Amy Little in York and, um, and colleagues has, suggest that it may have been in, it, it's in some way, you know, connected with the, with the, with the burial, with the, perhaps with the shaping of the post or whatever. It's certainly deliberately buried with the dead the axe may have been the edge may have been blunted and so on at the time okay. um and then if so that's that's an example of uh you know a, a complete in, individual being buried in death and then close by to east of hermitage a place called Kalura cave in, in limerick excavated in the 90s um by helen o'shaughnessy and, and, and peter woodman and um um and there it looks like the remains of individuals are placed outside the cave and then they get washed into the cave. Okay. And that's a practice that continues into the Bronze Age. Okay. So there's so we have this notion of a place that's important. Um and uh for the deposition of human bone and, and other materials later on, and that Episodic. Now, it's not saying it's in use at all the time, but you know, it's 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 episodically used. So there's some notion of that place being important, continued on. and that happens frequently with with caves that they are places that people come back to. So in in that case, Gabriel, sorry, um, it wasn't so much that Mesolithic people went down into the cave and carefully placed the remains in a yeah. certain area of the cave. They were left exposed. That's near the mouth of the cave, and and that's the interpretation that that's they were kind what of it looks like a natural process. Maybe. Now, on the other hand, there's also another cave in Leitrim called Shramore, mm. 
where the position of the bone suggests that actually people did go into the cave okay. and place the bones there. Okay. And 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 it may have you know from the from the from the positioning of the bones and so on, it, it, it may have been it may have been a body that was placed there. So there's, okay. there's different practices going on. And then and then just going on to the the, the loose human bone, a very good example that I use kind of for one of the fictional scenarios in the book is Rock Marshall. Yes. Where in on the Cooley Peninsula in in uh, in Louth, which has been in the news recently for because of the the flooding, um, but on the on the on the southern shore of of Cooley, uh, and what was then on the shoreline and is now about three hundred and fifty meters inland. So again, showing us this these landscape changes over time. Um, middens excavated by Frank Mitchell in the in the nineteen forties. One object that was found was a human femur, okay. and no other human remains. Okay. And so, one interpretation is that's a loose human bone that was and was, you know, it's being carried around by people on on their, on their rounds. Um, now, of course, the, the, there may be other interpretations, but that yeah. it certainly would tie in with what we, what we get elsewhere. That would actually sort of lend itself a little more to people's imaginings of what life in the Mesolithic might have been like, that people are on the move, maybe yeah. they're taking the things yeah. that are important with them. Yeah. And, and it contrasts quite interestingly, I think, with Hermitage, which yeah. is, is suggests it's marked by a post that people return there, that people are, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a place that people have marked for a reason and for a purpose, yeah. um, which it's, it kind of feels more formal than perhaps an initial imagination of a hunter-gatherer group. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'd be, I think you're right. And then at the same time, I'd be, so broadly speaking, what's interesting about the Mesolithic in Ireland is that we have more evidence for more semi-permanent base camps or whatever, early in the Neolithic, and then it looks like people are becoming more mobile over time. Yeah, okay. But as my colleague Graham Warrens points out, that, doesn't necessarily I don't think we should imply then that life got simpler yeah I think in a way it's people adapting to uh, for example stone technology changes people are using a wider diversity of, of resources it certainly looks like they've, they've got a better understanding of the landscape they're more tuned in to what's going on they're probably introducing wild pig they've introduced wild pig you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's a complex it, it we we want to be careful not to be underestimating the complexity of life yeah. in the yeah. Mesolithic, even if we're left with what looks like, you know, slender traces of their of their lifestyle. Yes, and and again, it's it's going back to some, you know, it's when you get exceptional conditions of preservation. Yeah, if you think about the Mesolithic and their use of wood, for example, mm -hmm. well, we really need to get a, a something to wish for. Yeah. Is a, is an Irish waterlogged Mesolithic site? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. With good condition, and of course we've got some of them where yeah. these amazing, you know, the the, the 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 trap, the fish traps have turned up in places like Clownstown and in in Meath right. or on the on the Liffey. Yeah. Uh, so that you know, we, we we always have to bear in mind that notion that we're we're getting a a proportion of the evidence surviving. A hundred percent, and I think Clownstown yeah. shows that really well because the yeah. sophistication, the the, yeah. the craft of that, it's highly skilled. Yeah, and yeah. That's for something quite functional, if you like, mm. like a fish trap. So mm. it makes you wonder about they must have been master woodworkers, and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. using yeah. resources. Yeah. It's very interesting. 
Um, I suppose moving forward through time into the Neolithic and, and um, you know, I, I think this is the period that might come to, if you ask a person on the street to think about something associated with the dead in prehistory, mm. Newgrange might be the thing that, mm, that comes flashes to, mind. to the mind. Um, it, it, and I think the megalithic tombs rather than, we touched on them a little bit uh, earlier, I think it's a really interesting subject for, for, for many reasons. I mean, they, they are in, incredibly complex monuments. They, they have lots of different stories to tell. But now that we do have this kind of variety as well, so we have portal tombs, or, or people might call them dolmens, we have passage tombs, we have uh, court tombs, we have wedge tombs. What does that sort of variation tell us uh, about Neolithic society? Were... The, the tombs kind of overlap, with the exception of wedge tombs, which kind of come at the end. A lot of the others overlap yeah. for a good few centuries yeah. anyway. Um, does that tell us something about cultural variation among groups in the Neolithic? Or, does, or, or is it kind of something about certain types of people are to mm. be put in certain types of places, mm. like we were discussing earlier? Mm. How, how do you feel about that? What Do you have a kind of a clear... Um, idea about that subject. It certainly demonstrates the complexity of of Neolithic life and death. I think mm-hmm. uh, we could point to somewhere like Palnebron as a portal tomb that, at the moment, certainly is is the best candidate for the earliest dated megalithic tomb in Ireland. So, yeah. portal tombs are probably the earliest, broadly, yeah. um, and then core tombs, beginning, you know. Three thousand seven hundred, and and now evidence that passage tombs are probably beginning around the same date. Yeah. And as you say, then wedge tombs coming, you know, millennium later, two thousand five hundred, mm. whatever. And and then again, I was struck by when you were introducing that question, Neil. That t- the reminder as well that we've got places like caves that are in use in the Neolithic, mm. certainly from three thousand six hundred BC on. Linkage stone burials, which look more like you know the celebration of the death of a of particular individual and in, a particular individual and again from 3600 so it it i would see that period as you know after 37 but particularly after 3600 as really complex when you've got the possibility if we look in somewhere like sligo for example where we've got yeah. all those types occurring Around you know, in the in an early passage tombs as well, uh, in Knocknaray, Caramore, Carrowkeel, you know the possibilities that, in in some senses, people could have a social allegiance to more than one type. I think to more than one tomb type, and I think that's been demonstrated graphically by the ADNA. So there's this core tomb called Primrose Grange, which is on the south side of the Knocknaray Peninsula. And Listowel is the main tomb in the Caramore complex. Yes. And there seems to be a couple of individuals who are show genetic kind of linkages between okay. Primrose Grange and Listowel. So I, I, that's a nice example, I think, of, of that there, there, is a, there are kind of linkages across what we see as these architectural tomb yeah. types. And if you think what, you know, by and large, we, we tend to think of portal tombs and core tombs operating at kind of a local level, even if you think about their scale, going mm-hmm. back to this notion of community-based monuments, mm-hmm. and recognising that the big passage tombs like 
Newgrange, Nouth and Douth and the, the Lock Crew and Maeve's, Maeve, Maeve's Cairn up on the top of Nottingham come they seem to come at the end of the sequence towards 3000 but they do represent something bigger it's like a the notion yeah. of a bigger social tradition and there and this notion of the importance of visibility between monuments yeah yeah and that notion of you know that expression of intervisibility that Frank Prendergast for example has talked about and again the ADNA suggesting that this is the kind of genetic cluster within these large passages so it's certainly speaking to a larger social identity. So yeah. if you think about it, I think it's entirely plausible that in somewhere like Sligo or Cooley, you know, where you've got Pasha Tombs on the hilltops and Black Mountain and Sleep Gullion, and then you've got Court Tombs and Portland and Lower Down. It seems to me entirely plausible that you could operate Cheerfully. Well, cheerfully may be the wrong word to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, w- w- that people could have seen links both with pl- monuments that were long in the landscape, like portal tombs, and still be using them. Yeah. And and indeed court tombs. And then, at the same time, showing kind of a li- linkages to these larger monuments on the, on the hilltops. Yeah. I, I think, it, uh, to me, that sort of works better than this notion that they're certainly not, as you, as you pointed out, they're certainly, they are contemporary. Yes. Yeah. We we know if we look at the distribution maps. Yes, there are places like the Boyne Valley where you only get passatums, but there are other places where, and I've pointed to some of them where you've actually got the tomb types together. Yeah. And and it's 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 difficult to imagine that that there there isn't at least a knowledge about these places. There aren't stories about them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go back to a portal tomb that might have been there from. 3,800, 3,700 and you come down to 500 years later it's, di- it's difficult to imagine that they wouldn't you know such magnificent monuments in terms of their architecture and they're still there yeah and and uh, I, yeah I, I I like to think that so you have this already a kind of a an ancient landscape a storied landscape yes around and monument and stories would have been grown up around these monuments and they had to be brought into the made relevant to today's society yeah, so it makes to I think it makes sense that we would see them as linked. Yeah, <clears throat> no, you're right. I, I think one of the the places I'm particularly interested in, and it shows a lot of those qualities, is like the Dublin mountains. Mountains, yeah, uh, and yeah. where you have these variety of monuments. Yeah, I, I always end up thinking about one in particular because I, there's a story there. I, it's just it's hard to take your modern head out of the story uh, with Seahan, in particular, where you have two quite large yeah. uh, tombs next to each other. You have uh, a passage tomb where you can still see the curb. You can see part of the passageway and you can see part of the chamber has been exposed. And next to it, a very large cairn. Mm. And uh, the reason I find that so interesting is because I did a little bit of work up at the Hellfire Club and that's where a tomb, a, a passage tomb, uh, appears to be a passage tomb, uh, was destroyed to make way for the Hunting sure. Lodge yeah, in yeah. 1725. Yeah. And and essentially, the tomb was reconstructed, if you like, uh, next to it. Yeah. But on Seahan, there's nothing like that. Yeah. You've just got this exposed tomb. tomb. So you wonder, is the kern next to it? Yeah. Has it recycled all of the, the stone and the building materials from that? And in which case, does that tell you a story about tribal rivalries does it tell mm. you a story about mm. um you know they just decided that tomb they didn't like anymore and they wanted mm. to build this other one next to it mm. for some reason but it i think it's quite an interesting 
uh, when you get sites like that and you have mm. sites in proximity mm. as well of different types of monuments you mm. immediately start thinking that's, about the questions that's very interesting uh, around the people of why they decided that tomb is the one that our community is going to use and that tomb is the one mm. which is for somebody else or mm. for mm. another purpose or something like that that's very interesting yeah. um, and so if we but if we took it at face value mm -hmm. and that you've got these two monuments mm -hmm. That notion of duality of twins yes. is, is something actually that you see both in the passive term tradition and in court terms uh, expressed in different ways. Yes. And and then it it brings us back to, you know, the question of, well, why would you put two monuments close together? And and of course there are a number of reasons, but one of them is that, that very often we know from the anthropological record that societies operate in the form of clans or moieties this notion mm. that you know and for all sorts of reasons not least increasing for example the and, and kind of ordering the breeding population that you have two clans and you have to have intermarriage between them and yeah. you can't have marriage with you know what i mean all yes. sorts of reasons yes. and i and it is interesting when you think about that you have this duality occurring so in, in the basic design of some court terms for example you've got dual court terms so yeah. you've got in a sense two monuments facing each other yeah. separated by a court or the other way around where you've got a dual court term where they face the two courts face out you know what I mean yeah. and then you have so within the same within the courtroom tradition you very often have two monuments placed close to each other so you have these pairs of court terms which may be another reflection of that idea mm. and then moving to Passage terms and thinking of somewhere like La Crew, yeah. you know, you've got pair and the central uh, Cairn T is the, the tomb that people may know in on Cairn Bain Easton, which is the center of the cemetery. And around Cairn too, there's a couple of paired tombs mm. close together. So again, you have that notion of twinning. Yeah. And then if you go to Cairn Bain West, you've got two big tombs. And going back to, you know, the original discovery, there was always this Cairn. D, I think it is, and and Conwell, the original the, the discoverer of 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 uh, Lacou put it put a trench coat and couldn't find anything. Okay, but there's another big tomb. I think it's H on very close to another. Where normally the pattern is, you get one large tomb with smaller ones around it. Yes. So yes. again, is it another sort of duality going on? Yeah. And then interestingly, and I only thought of this when you were, you know, posing the question. You know, we have this amazing discovery at Douth in the Boyne Valley mm -hmm. with Cleany Lynn on, you know, the recent discovery on the Douth Hall within, within you know, very close to the large tomb at Douth. Yes. Now, it's not as big as the large tomb at Douth, but it's certainly oh, it's bigger than anything else around. Yeah. yeah. So is that another kind of twinning or is it a replacement over time? Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. so I think that, but I think that notion of twinning is really important. And and that idea that we can recognise these this this deliberate, um, yeah, architectural expression of that notion that we we see in different ways in in different tomb traditions, and we we have I, and I should admit I mean we have portal to, we have pairs of portal tombs as well you know that's right and and, and sometimes you know thinking about the portal tombs and, and moving slightly into the uh, the next period the the calculatic around about two thousand five hundred BC we're first beginning to see metalworking appear in uh, copper and gold and so on and you've of course got uh, Proleak being one of our yeah, most famous yeah, yeah. uh, portal tombs but right next to you you have a wedge tomb which seems to come in 
around this period. So we see with the metalwork, and there does seem to be some new cultural practices coming in. I know there's a hotly debated subject in European archaeology about whether it's a new, you know, with ancient DNA and so on. Is it pointing towards a new group of people coming in? Um, they're still building large stone monuments right. in in some ways. It's, we we count it as part of the megalithic tomb tradition. So what do we see that apart from the metalwork and do we see many kind of differences culturally between this kind of area, uh, this sort of era now and what went on earlier in the Neolithic? Or in the case of Prolique, is that pointing towards more of a continuity kind of a uh, side of things? Yeah, I mean, so trying to pick up some of those things. So one of the interesting things about terms is that even though their construction seems to stop around about 3,000, they clearly continued on in use yes. into that. So they, they provide us with an important, if still something to be clarified, kind of continued use of passage terms into the late Neolithic, mm-hmm. continued use of cremation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but still, the, the picture for the late Neolithic not being as clear as it is for the period before 3,000. And then you have this very interesting, you know, reinvention in the sense of the megalithic tomb tradition, recognizing there are other megalithic structures and, and wedge tombs beginning to be built from 2,450 or whatever. And, and, and as Neil Carran put it, this reinvention, as I say, of the, the megalithic tradition. And in northern parts of the country where there was this millennia old tradition of building megalithic tombs, as at Prolique, wedge tombs being very clearly and deliberately being placed close to area monuments. Mm. And then, in a sense, by contrast, when you go down to the major areas of wedge tomb distribution down in Cork and Kerry and, and, and the Burren in particular, it's, it's kind of like, you know, they're by far the dominant tomb tradition There may be small numbers of area monuments, but what really seem to think that the kind of level of people there the numbers of monuments seems to take off in that early, yeah, yeah. early chocolatic period. Um, so, th- so that there's both signs of continuity, and then also signs of, of quite dramatic difference. You know, in terms of the metallurgy, the new ceramics, the the beaker, this international ceramic style. The question now of to what element, to what you know extent there was a new population coming in, uh, which certainly is 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 widely argued for. Britain, for example, that yeah. this, this large-scale population movement at the time. It, it, it's interesting when you come back to something like, like an object like Beaker, that it it's both, um, you know, it's both used, it's an international style right across Western Europe. But it, in a sense, picking up on something we said earlier, you know, that when you come down and, and look at the detail and in, look at the picture in detail in somewhere like Ireland, it's actually used in a local way. And, and it does things that speaks to who people are already here and ways of doing things already here, as well as to new ways. Mm-hmm. So, for example, beaker is often, the pottery is often used in ways that replicate the use of groovedware, which was the late Neolithic ceramic style, mm-hmm. and which is sometimes, you know, we get associated with the dead. We don't have any classic, we have lots of beaker, relatively speaking, in, pas- in, in wedge tombs, but the, the classic style of beaker burial across Europe is the, the, a kind of a single individual accompanied by a pot. Mm-hmm. And we don't 
at least not in a in a conventional sense do we have that kind of style variable. But for example, Mel in County, near Dodd in County Loud, we have a woman who's dates to the right period, buried the right way. And in the book, I think I show a, uh, an illustration of her and a beaker burial from Scotland. Mm-hmm. And if you close your eyes and blink, they're the same. Yeah. So you have that, you know, again, we're back to this notion of doing things in a particular way mm-hmm. that kind of respond to international ways of doing things, but in a way they're done that also makes sense for people who work, living and dying on the ground in Ireland. Yeah. I think Ireland's always had the great power of doing that archaeologically, hasn't it? I mean, again, yeah. going back to the Vikings, they, yeah. you, you see so much continuity with Vikings elsewhere, but the Vikings in Ireland seem to do things slightly differently here yeah. as well, you yeah. know. And, yeah. and looking at it in terms of the Beaker uh, period, as, as some would call it, I think is interesting to see yeah. that yeah. there is that kind of broader European picture, but there's that very local picture as well with a, with a different thing. And following on from that, as we kind of move into the Bronze Age, I mean, this is one of the periods that we know best archaeologically. Yeah. You know, uh, we tend to bump into their sites um, more often than not, as we mentioned, uh, when we're on these big infrastructural pro uh, projects. But uh, touching back on, on what you said earlier, there seems to be a real interest in the Bronze Age in looking at much more ancient monuments that belong to the Neolithic. If we think of the Mound of the Hostages, for example, or uh, on, on the Hill of Tara, which is a Neolithic passage tomb, but there's mm. a lot of Bronze Age uh, burials. Mm. Uh, and Fornox, similarly, another Neolithic passage tomb, which be- again becomes a real focus of interest again during the Bronze Age. What do you think that kind of reuse of older monuments is saying about people in the Bronze Age? Do you think it's people sort of looking for a continuity? Um, Does it suggest that they perhaps identified something with the belief system Mm. of of people who were around, you know, a thousand years before them? Or could there be any sort of a parallel even to the way that, say, ring forts and early monastic enclosures were reused as Killini as burial grounds for unbaptized babies and, and, and uh, informal burials, if you like, in more recent centuries here in Ireland. It, it, it's somewhere set apart that these saw as st- still being important. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you think it says about the Bronze Age that they look back at these ancient yeah. places? Well, I'll, I'll go to one side first and then come back. Because mm-hmm. um, one of the things I was keen to point out in the book as well, we, we've touched before on this kind of notion of relationships between people and things, and indeed relationships between people. Mm-hmm. And I think we'd be wrong to assume that that's something that's the same through history. Yeah, I think okay. it's different. Yeah. And I use this phrase, body worlds, which is you know a term that's been used and because it's through the way we use objects and the way we relate to each other that we create this notion of ourselves in in and how we are in the world mm-hmm. and when we look at them at the archaeological record that seems quite different at different times mm-hmm. so sometimes it's more about a kind of a communal sense of who you are and sometimes it seems more like the individual is to the fore mm-hmm. and if we were then to come back to the periods we're talking about Many of the burial deposits in the Neolithic are communal. So it looks like they're really trying to emphasize this notion that it's that's what's important, at least in death. It's that notion of a communal expression. And when we come to the Bronze Age, 
the classic idea when we think about, as archaeologists think, if I say to you a Bronze Age burial, you'll think of an individual with a pot, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's a very different view of the world. Yeah. And when then when you come to those monuments that you mentioned, uh, the Mount of the Hostages at Tara or Fornox, we actually see that expressed. So we have these communal deposits that go with the first phase of the use of the monument. And then in its Bronze Age reuse, we have these individual, it's individuals who are focused on in death. So there's, there's different, you know, and of course, remember, we never bury ourselves. No, no, that's true, that's true. <laughs> so what we're, do, what we're seeing is the, is the living yeah. reflecting their notion of what humanity is all about mm-hmm. and what humanity is like in death. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, I think, important to... And then we come back to your really important question, well, what are they doing when they do this? What, what, are, what does it mean when they go back to these places? So I think it, they're certainly... And I suppose one way you could put it is the way you phrase the question is, 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 this a, is there social significance to this? Or is it like, well, now these places are on the edge, so we, we, we can push them, you know, they're on the edge, that's, that's why they're okay to use. They're on the kind of social mm-hmm. periphery. So my sense is more, obviously both could apply, but my, my sense is from the way the burials are placed in the Bronze Age, I have a sense that it's, 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 there's a deliberateness about this. Yeah. And and also, going back to the people that are represented, I think that also suggests they're socially significant. Although Fornox is an interesting example we might we might come back to. But if we talk about Tara firstly, mm-hmm. what's interesting is there you've got a small passage to him, um, and and as Mauricio Sullivan has shown his publication and, and drawing on the work of, you know, a, a number of osteoarchaeological colleagues, um. Is a relatively large human assemblage, cremated bone and human bone mixed together, um, placed in a relatively simply designed passage tomb, deposits in it, and then early Bronze Age, the outer part of that tomb is disturbed. The earliest Bronze Age burials are placed in there, and and some of the earlier deposits are kicked out. You know, mm. not showing very much respect in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the focus shifts to the overlying mound, which is added to, and then burials, individual burials are placed in that in a number of different phases. And again, maybe four or five hundred years, small number of burials per per generation, and they and they seem to be in clusters that suggest. And then most interestingly, well not most interestingly, but the whole thing is capped off with a final burial who's in inhumation at quite a very you know, at a stage when Cremation has become dominant, and then we have this individual placed, what looks like the final act, mm-hmm. with this elaborate necklace, an adolescent boy or girl, um, placed and in in a way in the mound, but further west than the other burial. So it's like again a deliberate statement. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that as the final statement, it's very hard to argue that's not socially significant. Yes, and in turn, then reading back that the whole thing, I think, is part of a picture. Yeah. Um, so I, I think they're drawing on the memory of these places. And mm-hmm. so it's not, I don't think you can argue for, in many cases, not direct continuity, but it's more like a revival of important places. Yes. Places that there may have been stories around old traditions. 
and then they're reactivated. I, I think that's a that's a really interesting one because even if you think about the the example of Chiellini with people being uh, children, unbaptized babies in particular, mm. being buried in uh, ring forts, often thought of as fairy forts, mm. there is a kind of a perception that you know there was another crowd sort of to look after them. Or if you think in some cases of Christian burial grounds, you know, looking back at the medieval period in particular, to be buried in the same ground as, say, St. Kieran at Clamart Noyce or St. Coleman at Inishbofen or, or things like that gave you sort of like it was like getting a backstage pass to heaven in a yeah, sense, yeah, sure. you know. Yeah. And it makes yeah. you wonder about, with prehistory, was there a sense... Uh, of the other world in a, in a similar sort of a way that these were, they knew them as places of the dead. Uh, but every time we think along those lines, I start thinking, well, now they just lived on top of the great big um, passage soon, you know, so, uh, you know, even though they must have known it as the dead. So maybe the, yeah, well, I think it, the, it's difficult to. I think the history of these places was, was different depending on, on how they were recounted, you know, how they were remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and at Nauth, of course, you have what's interesting is you know as you say it's, it starts off as one of these me- mega passage gyms in, in, in around about three thousand. Not, you know, not some activity at, the, at you know in the, in the chocolate that guys were talking about. Not too much activity over much of the branches. Apparently, uh, reused in the late Iron Age as a burial place. Then you have a settlement phase, but also yeah. another early medieval burial phase so it's kind of very complicated yeah, relationship okay. between the living and the dead yeah. you know around the base of the of, of the large mound yeah. I, I wanted um, to come back to Fornox and then yes. yeah. to go into the bigger thing about children oh yes so Fornox is really interesting in that um, you have a lot a lot of the deposits in the passage of the passage home are children and the early Bronze Age, what's interesting about Fornax as an early Bronze Age cemetery is that the children in the small burials, the, the, the stone line graves are cysts and, and at Fornax are children. Yeah. And then Fornax too, maybe back to our twins, only 50 metres further east, is also a complex, let's leave it at that because that's another podcast, yeah. uh, a complex Neolithic monument that's made to look like a quasi passage tomb at, at the end of its use gets reused in the early Bronze Age, and that's dominated by adults. Okay, okay? Yeah. so a trend that I've tried to pick up on uh, is that children are very often treated in different ways in the yeah. burial record. Yeah. Yes, sometimes they're treated in the same way as adults, that tells us something about their social significance. But very often they're treated in different ways. And sometimes we're, we're missing children. You know, a lot of the cemeteries, the Bronze Age cemeteries, you, you have fewer children than you might expect. Now, in the communal deposits in past terms, the, the pattern looks more normal, ironically. It looks like more small children are represented. So I, so I think what you could also argue that our Kalini our response to a particular religious ideology about non-baptized children okay but more broadly does the question of how the living treated 
the tragedy of small children who died. Yeah. And that was, I, I think in many, you know, that's a, that is a, a, a human tragedy. It's fine if you, if you believe that life is cyclical, then in a sense there's a relief in that because those children haven't come very far from the afterlife and they're going back to it. Mm-hmm. At one level, that's, you know, a, a consolation. Um, so then not surprising that in some cases children are buried close to home, literally. Yeah. And one example of that is in the Neil, I think it's Lockgar in County Limerick. But, and then you might, and then, so we also have the problem, we're back to bias because of course, at, at, at least, you know, there's a, there's a perception that children's bones don't survive as well. Though there are interesting studies that actually indicate in areas like limestone, for example, where you would expect good preservation, you get children's bones surviving as well as adults' bone. Okay. So you can't necessarily use that as a you know bias, um, but it but it's certainly look in some of these Linkard's Temp burials in the in the Neolithic as well. It's interesting in that Ashley Park, you know, you have the clear focus is on an individual male, but there are a couple of small children's bones in and around where where he's buried. You know, so it's so this kind of evocation of either ends of the age spectrum and. Yeah. Perhaps relationships with the ancestors and yeah. how life wor- how life and, and, and death works, but but uh, you know so I think that's a broader issue, and then I think Kalini are a particular sort of um, re- religiously driven response to that. Yeah. Although again, you know, it, it would be you know what's also really interesting is there are a couple of these burial foci, early medieval burial foci, that start off you know, in that pre, pre a thousand period and they continue in use episodically and end up as, you know, with the children being buried separately from the, from the adults. Um, it's yeah. very complicated and, and I think it touched, you know, and without getting into the politics of the time we're standing here, you know, it's, it's a very poignant thing as well at the moment, I think. Oh, hugely, you know. hugely. And I, I, I can't help but, be touching people's response to the particular uh, instance. I, I think it's kind of an interesting example because you could kind of, on one hand, you could look at it and say, look, that was that period in Ireland with that particular um, cultural sort mm. of rule set and practice. Mm. Um, but also when you look at kind of the slightly broader picture, strangers were often, you yeah. know, treated yeah. in, in a similar sort of a way. Yeah. They were buried somewhere considered to be respectful or significant or but not necessarily with the main community um, that was doing the burying you know you find that in in say some of our coastal areas sure you know Tory Island and places like that so it, it, it's again it's about who gets to be buried mm. where in mm. what way mm. uh, and I think children because it, it, you know, having a six-year-old and one-year-old, mm. you know, when you think about these cases in the past, it is incredibly touching mm. and incredibly poignant. Mm. But it, it is, I think, um, interesting in terms of the way that people looked at their children in the past, mm. uh, in, in terms of how they then entered them. Because mm. unfortunately, child mortality was... It was very high. So high. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's so many diseases and, and, yeah. and things like that today, yeah. which aren't so much of a problem, thankfully, in a developed country. Yeah. Yeah, uh, like Ireland. Yeah, and you know, there's those very touching examples of, and, and I think it's it's particularly 
true in the in the Bronze Age because mm. of the folks and individual burial, mm. then it's easier to spot. You know instances like where an adult female is buried with a very small child or yeah. with a neonate. You know, you, you, yeah. you, so you know ultimately archaeology is about people, yes. and and that, that's you know very 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 poignant. And I I suppose what I was at a broader level in the, in the book, I was anxious that we didn't, you know, that we caught that alongside the recognition that this we're dealing with a, a socially selected proportion of the population. Yeah, fine. You know the social explanation, but but that kind of the f- the human emotion around the loss of somebody at death. Yeah, I don't think you can ever. You, you, and and of course that may have been expressed differently and in different ways in different societies, but it was there. And yes. and and it's important, I think, that we that we kind of try and capture that as well. Yeah, and I, I think the book does that uh, beautifully in, in a different way too. I think any other book I've read and looking at Irish archaeology, you know, it is the real human element to it, which mm. I think is so important. Mm. And um, I, I suppose just before we move from the Bronze Age, you know, typically when we might think of burials from there, we've mentioned the flat cemeteries before, um, which in some ways give you a sense of kind of community mm-hmm. in a way. The, mm. They can often be relatively close to settlements and such in, in, in some cases. But there's also the barrows as well, which become, they, they, they have quite a long time span of use and that, that's where somebody is either interred or cremated and they're within a circular uh, ditched enclosure. Is there anything we can say kind of about those two ways of dealing with the dead that we kind of haven't, you know, thought about so far? Yeah, I think that's that's a very um important um question neil because i think we've you know as as the bronze age progresses patterns of the treatment of the dead change and at one level it becomes you know after 1600 bc 1500 bc in a way the treatment of the dead becomes apparently less visible you know that there isn't the pottery tends to not you know the the pots buried with the dead are sometimes they're only they're only shared rather than complete pots. The pots tend to be simpler. The buried the dead are placed primarily they're cremated, they're placed in pits. But when you start to interrogate that record, it really is very complex. Mm. And um, so and and you have you know pit cemeteries of that period. So as I say that there are very often and only token you know not the entire cremated remains are taken from a pyre but a token deposit is placed in the ground and um as part of that practice we can get as you described it there the the creation of ring ditches where a pit may be placed in the center mm-hmm. a ditch dug around it and then material placed over the pit so that you have a barrow with a ditch outside and uh, but sometimes it well as well. It looks like as time goes on, it looks like you know the the ring ditches may have been had, may have kind of you know been used to the side as part of the funerary cemetery. But the pitch, mm. the pits may the burial pits may actually be to one side of it, okay. or the barrow covers a, a pit, and then more pits are dug beside the barrow. You know, this is a complex relationship. And again, I've I've tried to portray that in the book as this kind of two traditions of a, a burial tradition that's to do with, with pits and these pit cemeteries. And then there's this barrow tradition where you've got both the notion of individuals buried under a, a barrow and then the 
in turn clusters of barrows together yeah. where you have these what are called barrow cemeteries and, and sometimes they're in in clearly designed in clusters mm-hmm. and and I think in some cases we we can suggest that they represent if you like the notion of generations over time okay. and that you're getting you know if you can go back to my point about socially selected what well, this looks like individuals possibly from leading families or the same family or whatever are being buried in similar ways over several generations and sometimes it's it's clearly important that the barrows built close to an existing barrow sometimes a smaller barrow is put in, into on top of a bigger barrow so that they're kind of interesting in the interested in this notion of history so, so you read you read you can read i think these gene, genealogical genealogical connections through the way in which the barrows are placed in relation to each other it's very interesting so when we think of somewhere like say the heath in leash yeah or, or the there's similar or, in the corner yeah um it's uh, sort of almost like uh the valley of the kings or something along that sort of a line or is that going too far um no it's obviously at a smaller scale but i don't yeah. think it's it's going too far yeah. and um I suppose a closer analogy is, you know, we're very familiar with Stonehenge, but what we tend not to remember to the same extent are the amazing barrow cemeteries yeah. around Stonehenge. So I think you've got that idea. Yeah. And and in some ways, I think that connection is also interesting, that Stonehenge and then the barrow cemeteries. Because if you think of somewhere like Tara, mm-hmm. we, we've talked about the Mount of the Hostages, and I've suggested then that, and through Conor Newman's work in particular, you know, that then you move out and you've got these, this very large barrow cluster That's right. on, on, on Tara. And yeah. I think there's a, you know, an interesting sort of analogy. So mm-hmm. that, that notion that the, the focus shifts, and, but in a way we're back to this notion about respect of place yeah. and, and changing traditions, but going back to these, to these important places and in a sense drawing on their, their power. Authority, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the authority yeah. that comes yeah. with them. Because I think it's important that we, you know, we're, today we're kind of obsessed about the future and AI and where we're going and blah, 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 blah. But I think for these societies, what was really important was where they'd come from. Yeah. And the past and the, the idea that authority, as you say, came from the past. Yeah. And that's why there was such a concern with looking after these. Well, who was going to tell you about the past? Well, it was the people who were had demonstrated significance in their lives. They were the leading families. They knew how things should be done. They, they demonstrated links to the past, sometimes to a kind of mythic past that mm. that may have been made up, if you like, yeah. but yeah. the physical remains were there. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and I think that's why there was this concern with history and historical lineage and so on. Yeah. That's expressed in material form in these barrow cemeteries. That's very interesting indeed. And moving to the Iron Age now, and we mentioned earlier, like it, it is a bit more elusive for archaeologists. Um, even though I, I often think when the when people generally think of Ireland's archaeology, they might be picturing sort of Iron Age material and, yeah, and, yeah. and Iron Age monuments. But in terms of what we've happened to uh, come across archaeologically, we've less to work with than uh, we did with the, the Bronze Age, for example. What do we know about um, people in the Iron Age in comparison to the Bronze Age, did things change a lot in terms of how they dealt with the dead? Or uh, do you see, again, it, it's a process of continuity here uh, going into this era? Yeah. Um, 
Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think I, 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 there's elements, all sorts of things are going on in the Iron Age. And, and what's really interesting is that uh, the burial record, you know, if you, if, you, if you compare it with the period immediately before the later Bronze Age, where because of the nature of the burial record being, you know, apparently being simpler compared to the complexity of the early Bronze Age. The Iron Age, the burial records, is always seen as central. And, mm. and maybe part of it is because the record was so fragmentary. So the burial sites are really important. Yeah. And, and now, thankfully, we're getting more settlement evidence as well. So in the burial record, we see signs of continuity. Yes, definitely. These, some of the Barrow cemeteries that started in the Bronze Age continue to be developed into the Iron Age. We have new Barrow cemeteries that start in, in, in the Iron Age um, and clear signs of continuity. But what's interesting, and I've certainly argued that in that, in the practice that we see in those Barrow cemeteries, we're, we're starting to see, going back to this notion of a body world, we're starting to see, I think, a return to the idea of a focus on the individual. Because you start to get objects being buried with the cremated remains of the dead. And what's interesting is that the objects buried with those Iron Age cremated dead are similar to objects buried with Iron Age bodies in, in the last few centuries BC into the first centuries AD. And those Iron Age, earliest Iron Age inhumations of, you know, of, of burials and bodies in graves have understandably often been seen as representing, you know, a new tradition, something from outside, particularly links with, with, with the UK where similar burial practice is going on. And, and they tend to be focused in in eastern Leinster, in Meath, Dublin, so on. And and um, there's a view that uh, Elizabeth O'Brien's put forward and, and you know, it, it makes sense. And But I, I was kind of, yeah, interested in exploring this. And also... Another aspect of the record that we tend to see as Iron Age, but something totally separate and weird kind of are the bog bodies. Yes. Yeah, and we uh, tend to set them off yes. as something entirely different from the burial record. Yes. Okay, well, why are they different? They're different because of where they're placed. Yeah. And why do they survive as bodies? They survive as bodies because they're in anaerobic conditions. Yeah. So they, unlike other burials, we get bodies surviving. Yeah. So if we think of it that way, well, the next logical question is to say, well, actually, we should think about them in relation to all the other burial evidence we have. And that's what I've tried mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. And when you start to pulling those different strands of the evidence together, and when you start to recognise that, for example, even though cremation was dominant in the later stages of the Iron Age, we still pick up um, traces of bodies being buried right through that period. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as if there's an abrupt change or if it's, you know, this, and go back to my notion that people are, people's perception of, their, of the body was changing. Mm -hmm. They were much more receptive to the notion of placing the person as a body in a grave. Yeah. Then I think, then you, you can start to think about this reintroduction of inhumation. Well, was it a reintroduction? Or is it something that becomes more visible? more socially accepted, perhaps because of, of 
the kind of links we had with, you know, late Iron Age Roman Britain. Um, I think the picture's much more complicated than perhaps we've 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 presented it. And um, so I'd 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 see, and then when we go on into the Iron Age, yeah, cremation become you know still continued all through the Iron Age. Inhumation becomes dominant certainly from three hundred four hundred AD on. But interestingly, and you know, recent work by Paddy Leeson and Roman Lockton suggests that cremation continues right up to eight hundred AD. When nominally we're all Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So there's really complex things going on. And that transition from pre Christian treatment of the dead to Christian treatment of the dead is very complicated. And it, of course it's to do with the nature of you know, the fact that early Christian missionaries were keen that they didn't lose anybody along the you know, they were keen to gather in the yes. gather into the troops. So yeah, let's anything you not yeah. not quite anything goes, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Respect for ancestral traditions initially. Yeah. And then that changing gradually moved towards only burial and consecrated ground. But that happening gradually. Yeah. And to me maybe we've all you know, that that I, I think it was much more a transition than a sort of we're inclined to think of you know, St. Patrick and the world changes. Yeah. Maybe the world didn't change as dramatically as that and things were, and, and I certainly think you get that impression from the burial record that things are very complex. And you have these, the, you know, the emergence of these, of, of you know, secular cemeteries yeah. at the same time as there's this move to Christianity. So what's, what's going on? You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's a really complicated world. It must have been a complicated world for people to live in and grapple with. I, I think you so. And I, I think it's a really good point as well. When you think about it, you're dealing with people's families. Yeah. So if you were a Christian missionary and yeah. you came along to a group of people and they said, well, the way that you've buried all your dearly departed there is completely wrong. Yeah. And they're all down in hell. Yeah. We're not going to you're not going to convert on the yeah. spot. Yeah. Do you know? So that process, uh, there's a sensitivity inherent, yeah. Yeah. largely, yeah. Uh, when you're dealing with this kind yeah. of a thing. So you yeah. have got, I think, uh, to move kind of gradually uh, with some of yeah. this, you know. And and even looking at some of the early, early medieval within, kind of from 5th century onwards, Buried in a Christian way, in in terms of you know east to west and so on, there's still sometimes be yeah. grave goods. There yeah. are still sometimes yeah, yeah, echoes yeah. to what you would might label as sure pagan in in some ways yeah. of pre-Christian yeah. uh, traditions that lingers for quite a while. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways. So, yeah. it, and I suppose what I'd re-emphasize again mm. is that sometimes in the past, you know, even implicitly, we've thought. You know, religion, Christianity, mm-hmm. pagan, pre-Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have to think of changing religious ideology. Yeah. So religion was already there, and Christianity comes in as a a new religion. Yeah. So that's what's happening. It's it's this sort of, you know, uh, dialogue. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. Sometimes it wasn't a dialogue, but a sort of a, an interplay of of different sets of beliefs. And yeah. how you and how those changed over time, and and yeah. the fact again, as we were talking about in other contexts, that we can't necessarily assume it was the same everywhere across the island mm-hmm. over those critical three or four hundred years. People reacted in different ways. Absolutely, communities took it on in different ways. Absolutely, um, yeah. 
and that, you know that touches on a previous episode with with that's uh, Ryan Lash and, right. and Toby Burke. We're, we're talking about things like Holy Wells, for yeah, example, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, which are yeah. undoubtedly significant places yeah. before yeah. Uh, Christianity, yeah, you of know, course, uh, yeah. came along and, yeah. and perhaps formalised some of them. Can we go back a, a little, Gabriel, to the bog bodies because I know it's something when people think about death in in Irish prehistory, it is something that it, you know Ireland, I think, has some of the most significant or, or better known examples um there there is certainly as um as a, a sort of an archaeological phenomenon they mm. are very striking and it's hard mm. not to mm. think about them if anyone's mm. been to the kingship and sacrifice exhibition in, in the national museum um what I actually think they, they, they do an excellent job in the exhibition in that you don't have to necessarily you see don't. the human remains yeah. if you don't want to. Yeah. And you can still learn an awful lot about their life in the past. But what do you think about that choice of interring people in a bog? Mm. In, in that, what do you think that can kind of tell us? Or, or the treatment even, you know, old Crohan man, for example. Quite a few of them died particularly violently. Violently, yeah. Uh, particularly horrendous deaths uh, yeah. in in some ways. What what can we say beyond that about them? Is there anything that we can kind of does it give us an insight into Iron Age in particular hmm. um, life in their death? Yeah, they're they're very striking aspect of the record, um, particularly for the Iron Age. But I suppose I think it a key point. To remember going back to the point I was making before is that that it's a practice that has a long mm-hmm. history, you know, and that for example going back to the Mes- going back to the Mesolithic Neolithic uh, at a place called Stony Island in in um, Galway, there's a there's a a body that was was found in, in open water, uh, probably our earliest bog body. So it's a, there's a there's a longevity to the tradition if you like so it's part and probably part of the tradition of the way people were buried in many different prehistoric societies and then I, I, it may seem like an aside but I'm, I'm actually coming back to your question um, for much of the Bronze Age traditionally a key part of our record was the metalwork mm-hmm. that was found in various deposits and a lot of those were in bogs, in rivers, in lakes. And also now places where where we where we you know where human skulls have been found. So I I think in a way there's a linkage then between these different kinds of deposits in these wet places. And and remember again going back to the environment we're dealing with, it was a much more it was a much, you know the the, the wild the, the wetlands were much more extensive, the peatlands were much more extensive. There were places that were crossed, as we know, trackways and so on. But they were they were kind of probably otherworldly as well. And that, you know, picking mm. up on your point about holy wells, if we think about, you know, water, rivers, wells, places where water springs up, yes. caves, another example of kind of, kind of, you know, places where you have that opportunity to meet the other world or portals to the other world. Yeah, mountain tops, yeah. liminal spaces. Exactly, liminal spaces. Yeah. So in a sense then, you know, coming back to what, what was happening to these people. So I suppose there's, there's a number of ways we can look at them. Certainly some of the Iron Age bog bodies look 
you know, the individuals, while they had a horrendous death, mm. they actually looked like they are socially significant in yes. terms of their state of health, yeah. the way they were, ironically, their appearance, despite the fact that they were, you know, yeah. treated terribly in death, but yeah. they, that they looked like they're, you know, they were well, old important. Problem, old problem, man. You know, he, he, the estimate from, we only have his torso in his arms. Yeah. But the, the emphasis... Uh, emphasize that that he must have been what six foot three six yeah. foot four very big athletic strong yeah so out, in a sense a socially outsta- literally yeah. outstanding individual absolutely yeah. so it's hard to see what was done to him as as being you know on the just you know at the bottom end of the scale so to speak I, they didn't get this, a, a, a street urchin no, no, or no, something no, no, no. like that as, as a handy sacrifice yeah. they picked somebody at the top of the yeah so the question is so and again these have ideas have been played around you know is he was this to do with an expression of if you like a, a sacrificial offering to yeah. that to that other world mm-hmm. that's represented in the in, in, in the wetlands mm-hmm. um was it to do with the notion of the the passing on of 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 kind of power and this was a way of taking out a you know a potential rival and that you know or or on the other hand it was that kind of, it was somebody at that level that needed to be offered to the other world you yes. know, I mean, I think there are a number of different ways of, and then of course, and what's I think really important that you emphasised, Neil, that it's not just an Irish expression, but that it's somewhere that occurs in other parts of of, of Europe, Denmark, for example, and that right. that idea that it is, it was something that was practised in, in by different societies. Yes, and and I, again, the book I've made this link. You know, I've I've sort of glided across this evidence and tried to link it. Another aspect of the evidence that's interesting are these wooden, fi- you know, these anthropomorphic wooden figures that are found yeah. in bogs yeah. that can be life size that stretch from, you know, the the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. Mm-hmm. They can vary between a meter, meter fifty, two meters, yeah. um, and and some of those at least seem to be, you could argue, are deliberately buried. You know, they're buried under a platform of brush or. You know, they seem to they're they're meant to stand upright. They've got some of them at least have a front and a back, but at the end of their life, they're are they killed? Are they decommissioned? Are they pushed yeah. over? And then they're and then they're buried. They're not they're not placed. You know, we we, we tend to find them in in lake marge. You know, on the margins of lakes rather than yeah. in in in, uh, in in kind of peatland as such. But to me, there's a sort of a linkage between those and that notion of that other world that, that we're seeing. I think in the in in the bog bodies as well, yeah, um, yeah. But it is a, it, it. They're they're one of the most. Int- I think, you know, and I suppose they are going back. I think we we talked about this earlier. There, they're an opportunity to see people literally face to face, and and that's you know that makes. Yeah. I think that's a huge. It makes them much more. I think, um, well, accessible, but also much more literally human. Yeah, uh, and when we're dealing yeah. with bones or cremated bones. Sometimes I think it's it, it it's it's easier to have a distance from it. They, they they don't resemble us as much. Whereas bog bodies, yeah, they are very like us. You know. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think you know quite often when you're thinking about this level of time, when you're thinking about you know whether it's the Neolithic and mm. and, and so on, a great detachment starts in your mind mm. and, and you're right with cremated remains you remain quite detached mm. it, it, like they, they mm. don't look recognizable mm. um but with bog bodies they very much are you can see the mm. face expressions in some 
cases mm. and um, it, it's hard not to think of the person mm. uh, and their life and, and their death from that. And, mm. you know, in, in our discussion, uh, um, you know, we've gone through thousands and thousands of years in, in um, you know, and we've only kind of skinned the surface in, in many ways. And the book, like, I, I, as I say, I, I, I really recommend it, people, to dig into that because it, it really kind of, in a very accessible way, mm. brings out so much more of these kind of subjects and topics that we've been talking about. Mm. I find it interesting, actually, just as an aside, looking at Ireland and, and the way that Ireland is pictured mm. overseas. And when people think about Ireland, when they come to Ireland, it's generally for cultural reasons. They're not coming here for, we've got some lovely beaches, but we don't often have the weather to match, you know. Um, but, when we're looking at the kind of the tourism posters and, and, and things like that, and especially as we're not too far away from the solstice and such, it tends to be a lot of our prehistoric burial places tend to feature quite highly when yeah. people think of island culturally. Pool Nebrone, Newgrange, these are some of the places that we, we most think of. And I think we're living in an interesting moment in Ireland. You know, it, it we're kind of going through this sort of transition in some ways where a lot of the population is sort of drifting from the Catholic Church mm. uh, which had been more kind of homogenous culturally in practices uh, in the past let's say but the, you can see people are still looking for meaning uh, they're still kind of searching for a sort of connection mm. with tradition and mm. the past and with place and I think you you see that best when you go to the likes of say Knockroll at the winter solstice or, mm. or Newgrange. Mm. And do you know, if you go back maybe 10 years ago, you used to go to Knock Row and it'd be the local community. Mm. Mauritius would always be there. Mm. A great, there'd be mm. a few archaeology nerds like myself around the place, but there wouldn't be too many people, maybe 20, 30 people. Sure. But now there's a couple of hundred. Yeah. yeah, yeah every yeah. year, yeah. you know, and it's growing and it's growing and it's becoming yeah. more, um, almost formalized in a sort of a spiritual way, not from the community and not from uh, people like Morris, but there's more people kind of the uh, with pagan beliefs, let's say, or, sure. or non-Christian yeah. beliefs, yeah. chanting, drumming, yeah. singing, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yes, uh, sometimes that, that connection between people's reimagining meaning of place Yeah. It's harmful to the archaeology in terms of lighting fires on it and, sure. and so on. And, and we've seen, unfortunately, recently yeah. at Carol yeah. Keel, yeah. Uh, it, one of the tombs there was very badly graffitied. But it, yeah. again, it wasn't just, you know, Johnny was here. It, it seemed no. to have been yeah. more kind of sort of spiritually yeah. Yeah. motivated in a way. Um, but that, so as we're trying to find our feet in this new era, but mm. we're continuing to look back at these ancient places. Mm. What do you think it is about those places that kind of holds the resonance for us? And and how do you feel that perhaps as archaeologists, this is a big question, so sorry, <laughs> but how do you feel as archaeologists, do we have any sort of a role in mediating that reconnection between people and these ancient monuments? Uh, because they are vulnerable sites in some ways. They are vulnerable sites, yeah. Uh, But they also still have a meaning and a purpose for people. And and I I think it's an interesting time to ask some of these questions. 
That's that's it is a really interesting time to ask that question or those questions, Neil. And can I try and um, pull together a few things from from what you've just said and 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 maybe start from one angle and then come in to the latter part of your question because I was, you know, a lot of your questions have sparked things in my head that I hadn't thought of before, which is fantastic. We we talked about modern cremation and uh, you know the fact that it's not, I don't think sometimes we. You know, it's really interesting how how relatively quickly it's become accepted practice yeah. in, in Ireland today. So now, if you if you start with that premise and then go back to the notion of, you know, so we we've been talking to some of these things, and people would say, "Wow, that's that's very odd. That's very strange. I would never do that." And, and one of those is about handling bone, mm. right? But if you think about what happens now, very often when somebody's handed back their, the urn of their, you know, and people will, will scatter the bone. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so in a way, there's a kind of a, that they're showing respect to the dead, but also the recognition of the significance of handing the remains of the dead after death. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we, maybe we haven't thought enough about that. Mm-hmm. And can I tell you a little story? And then I'll come back to your... One of my big heroes is Thomas Lynch. Uh-huh. And he's a, he described himself as a poet, essayist, an undertaker. Okay. And I was very keen that he'd launched the book. Uh-huh. And sadly he didn't make it, but we had his voice yeah. in the Royal Irish Academy. And it was fantastic. But there's, just, there's an amazing, there's a couple of documentaries about him. And one I think is by Cahill Black. And Thomas is in his undertaker mode. And he's describing how this woman came to collect the remains, I think, of her sister. Uh, and she, she's handed an urn and she's got a station wagon as they'd say in the States and she starts off so he's looking at her out through the window of the undertakers and she starts off by putting the urn in the back of the station wagon and she gets in the driver's seat and she she drives off but then she stops and she takes the urn out and she puts it in the back seat and then she drives off again. He sees her further down the road, the, 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 the entrance, you know, the exit out. And she stops again and she takes the urn out and she puts it in the passenger seat and she puts the safety belt around it. And then she drives off. So there's that, I think that connection between um, the living and the dead is expressed in all sorts of ways. And I, as I say, what I, I, I was thinking when you were talking about, you know, the past and the present. And I, and I think that, this notion of cremation is a really interesting one to get it um, to grab onto because it, it it demonstrates that people can be aware of the fact that the post mortem treatment of the dead is complex, yeah. and that sometimes it is appropriate to handle the remains of the dead, and it was certainly deemed that way in the past. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll come back then to this question about the return to places that are significant and, and the, the kind of sense of loss that people have about, you know, and we can understand why it's happened, but the, the notion that, you know, a kind of moral path, a spiritual path has been lost because of the way, you know, belief in the church has, has, has kind of gone away literally for many people. Uh, and and some people even who are very committed at some level still to the church but just can't yeah. do it you know and so they reach to these older places that have been there in the landscape for 
for a long period of time and it's it's striking the way, for example, the Sosset and Newgrange, in a sense, has become part of Christmas. Yeah. You know, it's become yeah, yeah. part of that it's tradition. Big celebration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and then, and then, so not surprising then that, you know, people of different religious beliefs can can kind of come come around to that as well and, and appreciate the significance of pe- these places. And, and of course, the term Celtic gets attached to much of this because Celtic can cover basically everything. Yeah. And and I don't mean that in any dismissive way because it, it, it sort of is important as well. And and I've every, you know, somebody who was fantastic at doing this, of, of bringing old houses together. I can't, don't know whether you were ever at Newgrange around the time of the Sultan or indeed any other time of the year. Claire Tuffy at Newgrange was oh, just fantastic. stunning. Yeah. At, yeah. at being able to encompass all religious beliefs and none yes. and make them all. It was the humanity of people who were coming to this place. Absolutely. So now we get start to get to the nitty gritty, which is to say, well, that's all fine. But then part and parcel of that is that you're there to respect these places. Yeah. So then it seems to me incumbent that that's what you do. Yeah. yeah. And that you respect and not interfere with them. Yeah. And that if you're doing something like you want to leave an offering, you leave it in a way that doesn't in any sense interfere or in any potential way do damage. And that if somebody's there and you feel you're, you know, what you could be doing, you should ask somebody if, yeah. if there's somebody there. Yeah. And if there's not anybody there, which as we know is the case in many cases, you have to be really careful yeah, yeah. that what you're doing isn't actually going to detract. It's a bit like a World Heritage Site. You go there because it's a World Heritage Site. So the last thing you should be doing is when you go there is to detract from the value of the place that made it a World Heritage Site in the first place. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I, yeah, it's it's interesting what you were describing at Carol Keel because it's that struck me as well. Um, yeah, that this didn't didn't just look like, for example, the graffiti, the old nineteenth like, century graffiti in Newgrange, where yeah, you know, or, or even the recent case at Lock Crew where somebody yeah. had scrawled the names across a yeah. couple of the stones. Yeah. you know, that's your more kind of yeah, randomy casual stuff, messy yeah. graffiti. Kilroy was here. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas some of the stuff at at, at Carol Keel at least seemed to express a kind of link with the original, even though it was actually deliberate. It looked like deliberately diminishing yeah. the value of the original yes. by these scratches on the stones. Yeah. So I'm not sure it is that people don't get it, yeah, or whether it's deliberate, or whether, as you say, we need to be, you know, more attuned to this at at a level of protection. It certainly speaks to me the need, like going back to Carol Keel and, and World Heritage. It is, I think, relevant and important to remember that Carol Keel and Carol Moore and, and related mm-hmm. sites are now under the, on the World Heritage Tentative List for Ireland. Mm-hmm. So that's really important that their value is maintained. That and that's not in any sense the same applies to every site. But, you know, it, it, this is particularly relevant. But on the other hand, then, it would make sense, for example, that there's a heightened awareness and the possibility of even having kind of roving rangers on a random basis. Go- and in the same with Lock Crew, yeah, yeah. you know, that yeah. there needs to be some level of, of, of greater protection, if at all possible. Yeah. But the primary responsibility has to be on the people who are doing this. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if we can make them, and I don't know whether it's that they're on a, is it 
that there's not an awareness that this is actually damaging those sites? Do they it, think they're adding to their value and it, when in fact the opposite is the case? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because you, there's so many different groups, you know. Mm. Uh, so the group, for example, at Knock Row would, would be quite respectful. You know, of course, they, they, yeah. they, it's quite organised in a sense, yeah. you know. I was up at Seahan, which is an exposed place. Not many people would go to Seahan up on the top of the Dublin mountains and somebody had quarried out part of the larger kern to make mm. a sort of windbreak shelter mm. and wrote Irish Druid School over it, which I don't think they're affiliated to any particular organisation as such. I think it's just Egypt's mess. And so on one hand, you've got that very kind of a casual thing. My, you know, as I said earlier, I've lived in Ireland now uh, 24 years or so. And one of the things I love best is that there's so many monuments where there's no mediation Absolutely. between you and the monument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, with the goodwill of the landowner, you can go through the field and you can see a site which has remained largely unchanged for mm. centuries. Mm. And it's atmospheric and it's beautiful mm. and, and you get a real kind of heightened sense of the place and, and it's a great place to kind of... It's important for so many reasons, for so mm. many people. Mm. And I would hate that to be lost mm. because... You know, the 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 knee jerk reaction would then be, oh well, we got to lock up Carakeel. We have yeah. to make it. I think we have to try a few things to protect them first. Yeah. But one yeah. of the ways I think that we could protect them from an archaeological perspective is is to help to increase the public value mm. on these sites mm. that they don't belong to just archaeologists or just a niche group of scientists. Absolutely they belong not. to all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whether you're from Ireland or not, sure. Uh, they're a part of our shared humanity. And, mm. and one of the things I think the book does beautifully is, is make those connections with, mm. it helps you as a reader mm. to join your connections to two people who lived thousands and thousands of years mm. before you. And I think mm. we need to do a little bit more of that. Yeah, and I think it, it, that's very interesting. And, I, and I, I, I'm absolutely with you. I think the vast majority of people who go to, you know, not grow or Newgrange or whatever, mm. Lock Crew are, are just there out of respect and they're very yeah. respectful if they're there at the Lock Crew Equinox. You know, they're yeah. hugely respectful. Yeah. And we're talking about a small a handful handful yeah. of people. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, as you say, they're the, the Kilroy was here. But it, it's, so it's that small minority of people who perhaps if they, uh, maybe it's a misunderstanding of, of what they're doing. You'd like to think that. But I, I, I yeah. just wanted to go back to, I was, again, um, it's really important about who built these monuments. It wasn't archaeologists. It was people who were doing it out of respect, who, who for whom it was a social expression. And even though, as you know, as I've been arguing, it's only a certain number of people who ended up in the monuments. They were important. They've been important since they were built for different reasons, and they've passed through many different phases of understanding and meaning and reuse. And. Um, uh, yeah, I think that that notion of public value is is really important, and um, and at that you know at the time yeah, and as you say, at a time of uncertainty and when people are, I think sometimes despite you know all the the the, the publicity about the importance of these monuments and 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 go, going to see them, I don't think sometimes I think a lot of people just don't realise how widespread they are, how many they are. Mm-hmm. The, the important place of landowners in protecting them and allowing access, yeah. uh, how much they mean to us in terms of the Irish landscape. And, going back to your point, how unique still we are in Europe yes. in terms of the number of surviving monuments in the landscape. Yeah. I, I, I don't think we've 
probably portray that as clearly as we can. I, I certainly know European colleagues who come and they're just blown away yeah. by the fact that these aren't just little islands in a intensively agriculturally dominated landscape or a, yeah. in urbanised landscape that they're yeah. they're intact in a sense. They're yes, of course, the landscape changes and is continuing to change, but they can be appreciated yeah. in the landscape and are appreciated by people locally. Yes. Yeah. And the very fact that there's folklore about them and, and you know, different traditions is, is, is part of why they're such rich places to go and visit and have the opportunity to do so. Absolutely, I can't agree more with that. And, um, well, Gabriel, I think that's been a fascinating discussion. It really has. We covered a lot of ground there, a lot of, um, a lot of different kind of subjects. I, I, again, you know, I, I can only thank you for your time and your insights and for the book as well, for the work for yourself and Connor and, and the team, the Royal Irish Academy for putting that together. I think it's, it's a beautiful book uh, and I'll be putting links to it in the show notes, of course, uh, so everyone can find it there on our website on abataheritage.ie. Um, but for now, thank you so much, Gabriel. I really thank, enjoyed talking to thanks, you. Thanks, Neil. It's been a pleasure. And it, some of your questions really, spark, as you can see, sparked off lots of ideas in my head, which I'm delighted to be here. So that's it for the second part of Death in Prehistory with Professor Gabriel Cooney. And again, I really want to thank Gabriel for all of his time and insight. He was so generous with his thoughts that it's an absolutely fascinating subject. To be honest, I could do three whole series on this alone as, as you could probably tell from that discussion I feel like we skimmed the surface in a way but there's great depths below and you can dive into those depths with the publication it really is honestly a fantastic book as I've said a couple of times now it's one of the best books I think I've looked at in Irish archaeology in a very long time it's beautiful the illustrations, the little vignettes, uh, fictionalised first-hand accounts of, uh, based on the archaeological evidence, it really helps to humanise the people in the past. And I think that it also sets the evidence in terms of its significance, why it's important, not only here in Ireland, but also internationally as well. It's a fascinating, fascinating publication with lots to offer and it's very accessible too. Yeah, I recommend you pick it up from the Royal Irish Academy website and we're going to link to that in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review on whatever your podcast platform is of choice. If it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify and so on, it actually helps us to be found. It lets those platforms know that people are listening and enjoying it. So do tell a friend as well. That's even better. I really appreciate that. But for now, I want to thank you. We've got more great episodes coming up in Amplify Archaeology. So make sure that you stay subscribed and I'll see you again on the next episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Podcast.